After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, guys, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly on to you. I haven't skipped a beat using Mint Mobile services. I have a great service even when I'm traveling for over less than 70% of what I was paying before. Listen to Uncle Chael and say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash chael. That's mintmobile.com slash chael. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash chael. $45 upfront payment required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Guys, I'm really into things that add more convenience to my life. It's even better when it also comes with safety in a high-quality package. I'm talking about my Eufy Video Lock. I'm still loving this thing. I love this thing so much that I'd like to invest in the company. I am so impressed with this product that I'm willing to back it. And if anyone out there knows how I can do it, please reach out. You gotta check it out for yourself. I'll probably do a quick social post, but for now, just search UV Video Lock. Do it online. It's a three-in-one smart lock, 2K camera with an audio and doorbell. It's easy to install. It has fingerprint recognition, so I don't even have to remember a code. I can control it all in an app, which again, the convenience is such a big plus for me. We are always on the go, and being able to monitor our home on the road is such a nice option. Not only that, I don't have to rush to the door if the doorbell rings. I can either open the door or ignore whoever's at the door by vetting them through the app. There is no monthly fees for security video storage. The battery is rechargeable, and each charge lasts about four months. This Eufy Lock is fantastic, and I highly recommend it. Search Eufy Video Lock online. That's Eufy, E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com backslash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your front door. What's happening, guys? Happy Friday. And thank you for joining another special episode of your welcome on Wednesday. I told you about some Twitter beef, and guys, we got more drama to get into today. Plus, I'll put the Chael curse 
on either Darren Till or Derek Brunson, and I've got some thoughts on Conor McGregor's last two fights of his contract. That's all coming up, but let's begin with some news that's come out of the lightweight division. Oh, golly, I'm so depressed. So, Poirier versus Oliver is done. It's going to go down in December. Now, sure, we should be excited, right? Sure, there's a part of me that is, but can you guys share this? Every time we get an answer in MMA, that also answers other questions, which then takes hope away. By example, Poirier versus Oliver. Awesome. Right fight? Sure it is. You got the champion against the clearest number one contender that the sport has in Poirier. But, but the depressing part, Poirier was talking about Nate a week ago. Nate was talking about Poirier a week and a half ago. So it kept hope alive. We're wondering as fans, where is this going to go? The ball is ponging. It's volleying back and forth, right? It's one of these really fun things. And I must tell you, nobody's done this better than Poirier. I refuse to give Poirier credit as some kind of a, a brilliant marketing negotiator. I refuse to. I think it was on accident. But even on accident, Poirier killed this one. He killed it. Poirier is the clearest, most obvious number one contender. The undisputed number one contender. Has there ever been such a thing? Everybody disputes the number one contendership. You fight for it. You fight for it in the cage, but you fight for it in the media. You fight for it in social media. You make your case, you make your argument, whatever it is to get that contract, to get your way. Nobody disputed Poirier. Nobody even questioned him. All the 55-pounders just stood back and said, Mr. Poirier, come on through. And he was owed that. There's nobody in the sport, not just that division. Not just this organization. There was nobody within the sport that more clearly should have a title shot than Dustin Poirier. But Poirier refuted it. He refuted his own number one contendership, which has never happened. It has simply never happened. And the reason I have to give him a ton of credit is because there's nothing to talk about. And much like at the casinos, right? Anytime you're in Vegas, the house always wins. We knew the house was going to win this one. We knew the house was going to get the number one contender in there with the champion. But there was still a show to watch. And there was still maneuvering being done by Poirier, who had he stepped, laid down and said, that's my fight. There's nothing to talk about. Never a great spot to be in when there's nothing to talk about. There was nothing to talk about. So Poirier created something, which is I might forego the number one contendership and go and do this business with Nate or somebody else or hold out for Connor. I'll keep my options open. The number one contender doesn't have any options. He is the number one contender. He fights whoever the champion is. Not according to Poirier. It was fascinating the way this was done. I don't know how that dialogue was. I don't know how it went back and forth, but Poirier opened Pandora's box. In many ways, if this fight didn't get done with Oliver, you talk about the house always wins. If this fight didn't get done, it would have opened up a very slippery slope, a very sl slope that I feel we might be seeing right now at heavyweight. When you have the interim champion and you have the undisputed champion, there is nothing to talk about. That is the way that this is done. 
show a little bit of respect to the history of the sport, to the locker rooms, to the other people with like-minded goals, you got to meet up. That's never been questioned. Now, the house will win, and that will get done, but Poirier is the first to ever create a conversation on where the number one contender is going to throw that card. What if Poirier comes out? What if? And goes, yeah, I'm the number one contender. Is anybody here dispute that? Great. No hands went up? Great. Usman, let's fight. Nobody said I have to be the number one contender at this weight class. You all just said I'm the number one contender, and I'm going to use it with you, Kamar. Just imagine. I'm just having fun here, but just imagine that this happened. Everyone would have shaked their head, tipped their heads. Their jaws would have dropped. What are you talking about? That's not the way this was done, but there'd be something to talk about. And that's what Poirier was so successful in doing here which I refuse to give him credit. I totally refuse. And maybe I should look at him as a smarter guy. I certainly don't look at him as a dumb guy. This was a brilliant move. I think it was an accident. I think he had fun trolling. I think he saw the power of being a troll. I think that he saw the headlines that he was getting. I think he planned to fight Oliveira the entire time. But I could be wrong. And either way, Poirier created a dialogue for number one contenders, which has never existed. It's never existed, and it was extremely important that the House went on this. It's extremely important that these two got together and that precedence was not set. I wouldn't like that as a fan. I understand we got entertainment, we got all these different things, but at some point we have to show respect to the integrity of of a number one contender taking on a champion. That's what's going to happen. Great, nothing to see here. But Poirier, Poirier at least started the talk, and there was a part of me, as much as that's the fight that I want to see, where, you know, and now that I find out that's the fight I'm going to see, and I have no hope of seeing Nate, by example, now there's still the question, well, where does Nate go? I think it was a big surprise when Nate fought Leon in the first place. Like, if there's one consistency, if there's one history in Nate Diaz's career, it's that he fights really hard fights. It's that he generally comes in the underdog because he stacks so many things against him, and he and Leon had nothing. When they started, it ended up being great and massive by the time it went down, but they started at scratch. So you never know what Nate's going to do. Like, if you sit down and go, this is a big fight, of course they're going to do that. Not necessarily with Nate. Sure, you might drop one right down the pike out, go grab Connor and go grab Nate. Great. Anybody can sell a Ferrari. Bring me the guy that can move a used Volvo off the lot. That's the guy I want to talk to. And that's what Nate can do in many ways. So it opens the door. Sure, we took, uh, we took Poirier off the board, but look at all the pieces that are left. What is Nate going to do? That's what depresses me. That's the tough part, right? The tough part about getting your way in this sport... That it, which we all got. The tough part about having an announcement that it's going to be Charles Oliveira and Dustin Poirier is it closes the door on other all the other silliness. It all be silly. Those two have to fight, otherwise we're just being ridiculous. But there's a level of fun that we can have with it being ridiculous. Can we agree on that? So Oliveira and Poirier are booked for the title, and there's someone else in that division who isn't too happy about it, and he's finally broken his silence. Justin Gaethje came out. He was talking about Oliveira, and he said that Oliveira is not the best, that Oliveira 
needs to fight Poirier. In Gaethje's opinion, Poirier is going to win. But for Oliveira to prove himself at the best, he's going to have to fight and defeat Poirier. Gaethje then went on to speak about Charles Oliveira versus Michael Chandler. There's a great match. Gaethje acknowledged, but it was very favorable for Charles Oliveira. Great. I'm close on that. None of that's a quote, but I'm close. What's his point? Was the goal to diminish Charles Oliveira or was the goal to diminish the championship? I would love to know the answer. Because I would not let somebody do that to Gaethje. If anybody looks back and tries to say that Gaethje... The night he beat Ferguson, that was not the Tony Ferguson that we were expecting. They then used Ferguson's night against Gaethje where he did not win around, his next fight where he did not win around, and his following fight where he did not win around to prove their premise that Gaethje didn't beat the right guy and therefore should somehow have an asterisk next to his championship. I would defend Justin. I don't agree with that. I would defend Justin and his world championship against anybody that tried to put a caveat next to it to say it was an interim. I do not give a damn what words you put in front or after. If the title includes world champion, you're a world champion. But it's it's kind of tough, right? Because this is more philosophical. Like, this isn't just talk between Gaethje trying to get a fight against Oliveira. I think Gaethje could get a fight with Oliveira anytime he wanted, as long as he goes and beats Chandler, right? Gaethje's busy right now. He's got Chandler. It would seem to me that whoever wins that fight can go and do whatever they want to do. That's a good guess by me. And maybe more so in Gaethje's spot if Oliveira remains champion, because then you have fresh parity. Either way, I'm still trying to figure out what his intent was. Was it to have fighting words against Charles Oliveira to try to stir something up, of which I don't think Gaethje needs? I think a win over Chandler, Gaethje writes his own ticket. Or was it to diminish a championship, which then somebody would hold a mirror up and flash back in Gaethje's face, which is not fair. It's not. Gaethje went out at 246. He took on anybody they wanted him to take on. He took him on in a main event. There happened to be a championship up for grabs, of which he won the end. You are left to ask yourself, though, would you rather be the best or would you rather be champion? And I get where a competitive mindset is going to say, I'd rather be the best, but if I'm the best, I'm going to be champion. That historically is not true. It is simply not true. I'm not sure we know who the best is right now. It would be very tough with the architecture, which does not exist competitively within combat sports. It would be tough, but I can go back and look at guys, and there are a few that will stand out that stood the test of time. Floyd Mayweather, best in the world. It's tough to come on the back of that. I think Lennox Lewis would have a very good argument. I think what Tyson Fury is on the cusp of doing would be a good argument, but there's other guys where I could discount them easily. Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson was the heavyweight champion of the world. He was the same age and the same weight class as Evander Holyfield. And Evander told anybody who would listen, I can beat him. I am the best in the world. When they finally got him together after keeping him apart for over a decade, Evander not only beat him, he didn't even have a very hard time beating him, which proves the point of Evander that Mike never was the best, ever. If there was a competitive architecture in place, there is no history book anywhere that would refer to Mike Tyson as the former heavyweight champion of the world. And that's not me being a dick about it at all. Mike should be able to take that. He's fondly, he's revered. 
He made plenty of money and had plenty of opportunities. If I'm talking about who the best was, Mike never made an Olympic team. He wasn't even the best amateur within this country, let alone the best amateur within the world. So somehow a guy who's not even the best amateur in America goes on to be the best pro in the world? I think that you have reason to question that. Particularly when there's a guy who's saying, I can beat him, and when given the opportunity, he did. But which would you rather be? Would you rather be Evander Holyfield, who was the best, or would you rather be Mike Tyson, who was the champion? Do you see where I'm not insulting Tyson? It kind of sounds like I am, but I'm not. Do you see where having the power of the pin and the bureaucracy, the mandate of the masses, control the narrative within the media, pick your own opponent largely, and keep the belt, whether you're the best or not? Do you see where that becomes a part of the game? And for anybody that mastered that game, come hook or crook, if they mastered that game and even for one night only, they had a gold belt wrapped around their waist that declares they are the best in the world, they are. They won the game. Through a competitor's eyes, falsely, they will believe that the champion and the best are the same thing. There is an entire game being played. Just to be given the opportunity to fight for that belt, you had to do some part of that game very well. You had to. You had a few things go your way. Turned out you were pretty good at it. Maybe you even grabbed that belt for a night. I can remember within our sport, and Matt Hughes is the one that said it. They woke Matt Hughes up to inform him he was world champion, by the way. I'm giving you a history lesson. Matt was fighting Carlos Newton. They crashed down to the cage. Both guys go out. Matt comes to first. Okay, you get to be champion. Now, Big John McCarthy, who was refing that match, does not agree with what I just said. That's what it appeared for the viewer. I was a viewer. I happened to be there live. It's my first UFC ever. I got to see it live. That's what I thought happened. What I thought I saw was that both guys go out. John's looking around, what do I do now? There's no rule on that. That had never happened before. So John's going to have to figure it out in this moment, and nobody's going to argue with him because there is no rule on it, and he is the authority figure. Matt comes to first, boom, you win, you're the champion. John has told me since that's not what happened, that my eyes lied to me, and John had a totally different answer. I don't look to dispute that or get what the exact point was. All I'm attempting to prove for you guys is it was a little bit of a surprise and it wasn't some overwhelmingly impressive performance that got Matt the championship in the first place. Matt kept the belt, kept his mouth shut, moves down the road, has a title fight. He's going to defend it. Successfully defends it and then and only then on the mic says you're never really the champion until you defend it. Simple line. Not really even all that good of one, but it caught on. It caught on in our sport and other people started to say it. I heard announcers starting to say, well, you're never really the champion until you defend it. I heard other fighters starting to say it. It's one of these things that is absolutely false. It does not stick around. Any more than Gaethje wasn't champion because he was interim champion. Yes, he was. Yes, he absolutely was the champion. Any more than saying that Charles Oliveira is it. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Now, being the best and being the champion are two different conversations, but even if you steer in to that false narrative that you must defend, don't forget the guy who said it didn't say it until it was done. I would begrudge it anyway just because it's factually not true. In no sport must you defend. Imagine that was true in the Super Bowl, right? The Patriots win it, but they got to come back and win it next year. It's silly. It's not true. 
I could at least understand why we as an industry kept an expression around if the person, the author of the statement, said it before he put himself in that spot. If Matt came out prior to defending and said, look, appreciate the belt. Appreciate you guys calling me champion. I'm not. I'm not unless I defend it, and that's what this is about. And you know what, by the way? That's been tested one time. One time ever did anybody have the balls to ever do that. His name's Dave Schultz. Dave Schultz won the Olympic championship in 1984. In 1984, the Russians boycotted. And Russia back then wasn't even known as Russia. This is when the Soviet Union still existed. They were known as the USSR. But they were the powerhouse for wrestling. They did not show up to the games that were held in Los Angeles. Moscow, Washington, D.C. had this beef. Russia kept the athletes home. Dave Schultz meets up with the Russian in the finals in France. It's called the Henry DeGlon Challenge. He met up with him in the finals a number of months later, two, three, four months, not that long after he was Olympic champion, walks onto the mat, and when he shook the Russian's hand, he said, this is for the gold. Dave Schultz lost the match 6-5 to five and never called himself Olympic champion again. He died in 1995. He did camps. He did DVDs. There was posters. He did seminars. He never said, I'm Olympic champion. He didn't put that on the brochure. He didn't put that on his resume. He put everything else he had done. NCAA champion and NCAA, uh, world champion. Never called himself an Olympic champion. That is the height of sportsmanship for me. That, that story is a very tough one for me, and I'm not, even, I'm not even positive why. That one has always affected me for the level of sportsmanship, there, but there was a courage on it because he said it ahead of time. That's completely different. It's completely different than saying it after the fact. No problem to Matt Hughes. Fair game. I don't think Matt meant for this to carry on, but in all fairness, it shouldn't have carried on. It wasn't true the night that he said it. It was particularly untrue, and he should not have been given credit for it because he didn't take the risk ahead of time. And now you're still left with the same question. Do you want to be the champion, Mike Tyson? Do you want to be the best, Evander Holyfield? It's not a simple answer, is it? Who is more recognized? Who made more money? Who had more great moments? Who did more main events? Who got more commercials? Who was universally recognized versus who was the best? It's tough. You're not wrong for what your answer is, but I would be very curious. And I think if you took a group of 10 people, you're probably going to go about seven saying they'd rather have Mike's career, and you're probably going to have three that say Vanders. And those three, two of them are going to be liars. They just think it's the right answer. They think they're being some kind of a purist or they're clinging to the fact of who was really the best. I, I don't know how sincere it would be. It's tough within the architecture to say that Poirier was a favorable matchup for Chandler. I'm not sure how. Vice versa, however that I'm not sure how. And if you're in Gaethje's spot and people are questioning, do you want them to question the Tony that you beat? All the things that surrounded that, the pandemic, absolutely no crowd, short notice fight. Does that favor you? Is that against you? Does intra mean anything? It's one of those things. It's a tough spot. If you want to give it back the way Dave Schultz did, you want to have sportsmanship, you want to do it ahead of time, you want to never make the claim again, I think we'll look at it very differently. But when Gaethje is questioning Oliveira, 
I'm left with the same question, which is he challenging Oliveira or is he challenging the championship? I maintain for you to this day, any problem at 155 pounds, the answer is Justin Gaethje. Any question you ask me, who should do this, who should do that, who should we put in a big spot, who do we know it over here, if it involves 155, right answer without even letting you finish the question, boom, I submit Justin Gaethje. I still think I'm right. He went quiet, he's back, great. He said some interesting things. One of which was a likelihood, and I'm quoting, a likelihood of me fighting Conor McGregor is 0%. Now, different approach, right? You've only got a couple. Oh, I want to fight Conor, and he's scared of me, and I'll kick his ass. Or you have the other one, which is very rarely done, and Gaethje did, which is to just remove it from the table completely, a way that you don't go and look like, uh, try to pursue something, not get it, end up looking like a fool when Conor brushes you away. Fine. Not a bad approach, but when Justin Gaethje says that, it makes me think more over what does the rest of Connor's career really look like? What does it really look like? And Connor's gone back and forth, right? I can only take a guy at his word. His word has changed. His mentality has changed. That's okay. Very common. But everything from I'm going to be done with MMA to I'm going to go into the world of boxing to I'm going to start my own promotion to, okay, I'm back in MMA. This is all I want to do. Reveal that he has two fights left on his UFC contract. I mean, what does this look like? If you're Conor McGregor and there's big gaps historically between Conor fights, sadly, two fight that could be 18 months. That could be 18 months to exhaust those two fights, and this is the clock doesn't start on those 18 months until he's back and healthy. Back in the gym, leg injury behind him. First match up, 18 months. Who's he gonna fight? It's a tough one. It seems as though Connor is very motivated and very gung-ho on MMA. It seems as though he wants to go out and have those two fights. Now, I think you would be foolish. To predict Connor's mindset 18 months from now is the same as Connor's mindset right now. It seems with many guys, I'm talking Connor here, but with many guys with a level of success makes them want to do it less. Some guys use that as a springboard, man, I can't wait. I want to get back out there. I'm hungry. If you were to go and look at, at Gilbert Burns, I don't know if there is anybody, definitely a lot of meaningful top five guy. There is, I don't know if there's anybody as hungry to compete anyone anywhere anytime you figure out how you want to do it i hear from gilbert burns he wants to do grappling matches all the time him and jake shields are going to grapple i'm just offering you the example that you have gilbert burns who is this red hot hungry competitor never talked about the money sure he has title aspirations not contingent on that sure he's a main event guy doesn't have to be right there's no contingencies there's no strings Gilbert wants a match. The end. Hard stop. We don't have anyone else like Gilbert. And when you do have guys that have a level of success, even the hungry ones like Gilbert, there's something that comes with that success that dims that fire instead of igniting it. It's just a reality. I bring that to you because if we're attempting to guess what Connor's going to do, we're left with very little information that right now he's on an injury list. He's going to come back. 
He's dying. He's raring to come back. He's going to heal that leg. He's going to fix things. And we know that he has two fights left. Now, two fights, if we get both of them, I think would be a major success for us, the community. Because this sport is a hell of a lot more fun with McGregor than with Hallam. Can we agree on that? Okay. Let's say Connor comes back and loses. Is that only going to ignite him more? Does he seek motivation in defeat more than he does in victory? I'm asking the questions because whatever he comes back to is going to be big. Not only because Connor's big, but now you're going to have the only the only principle that you ever need to learn in economics, which is supply and demand. He's going to have that, and it's going to be a rivalry of some sort. And what does that look like? Is that Poirier? A lot of moving parts to make it Poirier. It could be. Is it Diaz? A lot of moving parts. Could be. Does Connor go and find somebody else? Could be. Let's say he loses. Does he want to come back? Does he want to come back? He will have a contract renegotiation of some degree. My guess is Connor's going to exhaust this contract. Win or lose, one thing that I think we can count on regardless of commas and zeros is Connor's going to exhaust and run out this contract. Second guess, if he wins. If he wins, does that then take a level of motivation away from him as we've seen it do, not only to him, but to so many others? So it's a very tough spot. Gaethje doesn't know if he'll fight Connor. None of us do. That one doesn't sound like the fight that you would make right now. The fight that you are all excited and want to see right now involves Gaethje and Chandler, and you're going to see it at Madison Square Garden. The fight that many people are discussing is Poirier and McGregor, but that can change extremely quickly. Diaz sits out there somewhere. Does McGregor want to stay at 155? I mean, I'll lay out a scenario for you where I can see Connor fighting for a world championship. As silly as it might seem, there's a different set of rules for Connor. And when and if he comes back, does it in a main event, does it in great fashion, it's not completely unlikely that he uses his last fight up at 170 pounds, possibly challenging for a belt. Possibly. You won't convince me that Connor McGregor isn't one way a win from being a number one contender. And you won't convince me that Connor isn't one win away from being in a discussion to fight for this champ, champ, champ business on his last hurrah at 170. And you're never going to convince me that Kamara Usman or Colby Covington, whoever's got the belt at that time, come on in. So there's a lot of moving parts, right? It's very, very hard to guess, but it all ties back to before we get the silly game of matchmaking, we go in 20 different weird directions. Trying to just speak to the motivation. Couple of consistencies in Connor's career. There's gaps between his fights. If he's got two left, 18 months from the time that clock starts, not a terrible guess. 15, maybe a little more realistic. I think we're saying the same thing. Secondly, does a win detract from his motivation? Because we have seen that happen before. And not just with him, with a lot of guys. Losing re-motivates a whole bunch of guys, not just him. But if he was to lose again and have one fight left, and the likelihood of walking out and getting a different result than you got in the previous one, not great. Do you walk out one more time to get one more loss? Or do you change the narrative, go into a different direction? And I don't know that I, don't know that I buy the idea that Connor wants out, by the way. Everybody's given an opportunity to get out. 
Connor has it right now and he's not taking it. Right now, you leave the ring in a main event, top pay-per-view of all time, against a former champion who you weren't favored to beat in the first place, and you leave broken. There's your way out, and nobody questions you. Forever. 20 years from now, nobody looks back and questions his harder determination. A compound fracture is a whole nother level of injury. I only bring that to you because that was the window, and Connor didn't step through it. He went the other way. Instead of coming out of a burning building, he turned through the, he went back into the fire. So we know there's a competitor in there. And we know there's a motivation there. And we know that there's a hunger there. The question becomes, after the next contest, win or lose, which are your only two options, where does that hunger and fire go? Will he use both of those fights? What would you predict? We also got sprinkled in somewhere. I mean, it came up and went away. I would think this would be a bigger story, but it wasn't. That there was some kind of a contract, verbally alleged, for Connor to go and box Pacquiao. Point being, he is looking in other directions. He has other options. One of the few. Gaethje says the likelihood of them ever meeting up, zero. Fine. Other pieces on the board. McGregor has said within the last week he has two fights left on his contract. Is he going to use them? I would love, and it's only a guess. It's only a guess. But I'd love to hear what your guess is. So I just mentioned how I could see Connor jumping up to 170 pounds. Now, that's a division I want to talk about because we know about Usman and Covington Part 2 in November. But what about George Masvidal? There's few things that I have a disdain for more than when a manager says this is what makes sense. I don't like it when a fighter says it, but a fighter who's willing to step in there, willing to go through the training camp, make the weight, get on the airplane, walk in front of the world, the fighter has the right and gets a little bit of slack if he's willing to go and back it up. When a manager talks about what makes sense, it's infuriating to me. There's not a manager in this sport who's ever made a dollar himself. In all fairness, you attach to somebody, he goes out and earns money, he brings it to you. It's a very much a pimp-ho relationship. There is not a manager that then transfers from a manager to an executive or to a promoter who actually can go and run an event and find a way to monetize it because they just don't know what they're doing. So when they talk about what makes sense, what makes sense is whoever on the second floor at the UFC calls you and tells you they want to do. People that are professionals and paid and study this and have to bring in an ROI, what they decide makes sense is right. And it's there that's risking it. It's their job on the line. It's their money. So you have a pretty good indicator that they will let you know what makes sense. Now, Masvidal, what's he going to do? Masvidal is a top three star in the sport, period. The sport's three biggest stars in this order are Conor McGregor, George Masvidal, Nate Diaz. Nick has a chance to break into that. Possibly he's already there, but he's been removed too long. I can't put him on the list. Masvidal has a very good opportunity to be fighting for a world championship. You must understand that. Masvidal has no opportunity to fight for a championship if Kamara Usman keeps the belt. 
This is relevant. As you're putting your pieces together of what should George do next, they look very different based on the outcome of Covington and Kamara. Very different. Masvidal's simply not going to be fighting Kamara again. They're not going to go to a, a third fight. Not going to happen. Any scenario. No matter who Masvidal fights and beats in between, he's not going to get back to a title shot if it's Kamara Usman. Broad stroke, but correct. If Covington beats Usman, Kamara could go right into it. Kamara and Colby have to match up. But it's just like Leon and Masvidal. Like, there's some things that have to happen. Uh, that has to happen. That will happen. Unless Masvidal takes his ball and goes home, which in all fairness is going to happen someday, and he's earned the right to do. But Masvidal's team is talking about they'll do anything. Anything. No problem fighting anybody if it keeps them on a path to a title. I love that. To imagine that Masvidal is still hungry with all the success that he's had. He is the sport's second biggest star. That is a massive claim. It would not matter what sport you can. It would not matter if we're talking basketball, baseball, soccer, tennis. If you're the second biggest draw in an entire sport in the world, massive claim. But with that claim, he can do whatever he wants. In all fairness, Masvidal can go and sell out an arena against anybody. It's the same thing that Nate can do. It's the same thing that Connor can do. Those guys are on an island to themselves. There's not another person you could say that about. It's very rare. And it's very rare that a human has power and doesn't wield it. It sounds as though, according to Masvidal's management, I believe it was Malky specifically, it sounds like they're not going to wield it. It sounds as though that dirty competitor is still with inside Masvidal, and he wants to get back to his lifelong dream of being champion. That's awesome. I love that. Very different paths. If you're being strategic, it's very different paths. I don't know if there's ever been a time that's more important for Masvidal to get a win than next, because if he wins his next fight and Kobe wins... Very easy, very easy to see those two competing for the championship. Very easy. A lot of moving parts. If Kamara Usman goes down, I would imagine Kamara now has a great claim to say, well, I'm the number one contender. I don't disagree. I'm not telling you how this is going to play out. But when you sit down to those discussions in those fighter meetings, you have three or four ideas that you then deduce down to one. You mark it, you move on, and you never look back. That's how it works. Usman, with a victory, gets to be one of those very few arguments that comes to the table with Colby. Colby's got right there some moving parts. It changes. So it's very important that whatever play Masvidal makes next is someone that he says is favorable. Look, the Leon fight, very hard fight. Massive, but very hard. Gilbert Burns, very hard. Massive fight, very difficult. So there needs to be a little strategy here. Masvidal needs to make sure he keeps getting the attention of Colby. Whether he hates Colby or vice versa, those two could be partners. And it's important if you're talking about what makes sense. It's important, right? You've heard the old expression. 
Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. Very important that, Uz, that Masvidal has the big picture here, that he sees this. I don't like this guy. Talking about Kobe, I don't like this guy. But I need him. What Masvidal's going to do next. A lot of moving parts. A lot of balls up in the air. But what Masvidal's going to do next and the fact that he does it successfully, at no point in his career has this been more paramount than right now. To close out today's show, there's a big fight going down in the middleweight division tomorrow. And because it's a Friday tradition, allow me to tell you how I think it will go down. Darren Till versus Derek Brunson. You would be stunned how many Darren Till fans, and if I'm being fair, it's less than 30. But the expression, countless fans, have reached out to me and begged me to not put the curse on Darren Till. The curse of having old Chael believe in you. I'm taking Brunson. I'm giving the Till fans what they want. I'm putting the curse on Brunson. It comes with a lot, though. It comes with a lot. Look, first off, I find Brunson to be very consistent. I find him to be a very steady and consistent fighter. I don't find Till to be consistent. Some of Till's best performances have been the nights when he should have done the worst, and vice versa. I'll give you an example. When Darren Till beat Kelvin Gatslam, that was razor thin. It was close. When the decision came in, nobody knew who was going to win, and nobody complained when it was Till. However, look at what Till was up against. He moved to 185 pounds. He barely got to the States. I remember when Till got... It was in New York. I happened to be there. Press conference, I happened to be at that. When Till sat on the stage and did the press conference, he was exhausted. He was putting on his game face, you know, but his eyes were telling another story. He needed to go to sleep. He had jet lag. He was fried. He wanted to get to the hotel. He still got a weight cut in front of him. Even if it's easier to make 185 pounds, he's still got to do it. He's got to rest somewhere. He's got to work with his coaches. He's, he's got to get adjusted. He's got to get an American meal. He's got to figure out what transportation is to get back to the hotel. I mean, there was just a lot of things that he had to deal with. But instead of doing any of that, like a professional, he showed up and did the press conference. And a lot of people wanted to hear from him. Darren Till versus Kelvin Gaslam. That's a big fight if we did it today. It was an even bigger fight then. It had major implications on it. I remember working for ESPN out there, and Dana came to the desk. This was prior to the fight. And I said to him flat out, if Darren Till beats Kelvin, will Darren be considered for the championship fight against Adesanya? And Dana said yes. It's as simple as that. But just to remind you of this time frame, that would have made Darren Till undefeated at 185, even if it was 1-0. He would have taken out a top contender in Gatslam, who just had the most razor-thin fight of Adesanya's career. There was a major revolving door. It would have opened things for Till, taking you back to that time frame. He shows up to a press conference that he almost fell asleep at. He was so tired. So you're not going to expect Till to do very well. In all fairness, that's a super hard fight in a foreign land while you're exhausted at a weight class you haven't been at. Oh, by the way, now you get the pleasures of jet lag. Real thing, Till's not going to perform well. Wrong. He did. But I could say the same thing about the night that Till lost 
the welterweight championship fight to Woodley. He was a favorite. The sport was getting ready to welcome in the Till era. People thought he was going to run away with it. And it wasn't a matter that T would beat him. If T would have beat him, I don't think I'm having this conversation. I probably would have forgotten the fight happened. It was the way Till performed. He didn't. Till greatly underperformed. He got taken down. He's hard to take down. He got taken down. He got mauled when he was there. He got tired within the fight. It was just the performance. The lights were bright. There was a lot on him. It was a massive weight cut. And he underperformed. Point that I'm making, you don't know what makes this guy tick. The night that Till popped onto the radar, he gets thrown into a main event against Cowboy Cerrone. I remember Brendan Schaub doing an entire piece on this prior to the fight, and Brendan was saying, Cowboy, don't take this fight. There's nothing for you to gain. You're taking on an absolute unknown. All you have to do is lose esteem. Even if you beat this guy, you get nothing. If you do anything short of steamroll him, you go backwards. Till won the fight, and he did it in the first round. It did surprise everybody, right? Now, you know Cowboy's going to take the fight. You know that story. Cowboy didn't give a damn. I'm just setting the stage for you of Till's career and the performances that Till has had with what you thought would happen. When you think everything's going to be smooth, he's going to perform well. He doesn't. When you think everything's against him, he's going to go out there and lay an egg. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's still inconsistent. I'll give him that. I mean, I'm, I'm being critical right now. I'm being very critical of a very great fighter. He's inconsistent. I'm right about that. And I just proved it. Proved my point. Brunson's very consistent. But with those consistencies, he has consistently had a problem with a striker he can't take down. Brunson gets frustrated. I know it because it was the problem in my career. So I can see it when other guys have it. When they have the same problem, I can see it. If Brunson comes out and his game plan is to take you down and he fails to take you down, he gets frustrated. And things can unravel very quickly. If you go see, I'll share two great fights if you want to go back. right? If you're betting on this fight, two great ones to see before you form your opinion. Anderson Silva versus Derek Brunson. Derek Brunson beat Anderson Silva. He lost the decision. He won the fight. One of those nights. But he's in there with a great striker in Anderson. Brunson was successful at getting him down at least part of the time. So he didn't get frustrated. His plan that he came in there with worked at least part of the time. It was enough to march him forward through 15 minutes. The decision is history. The opposite happened when Brunson fought Adesanya. He knew the blueprint. He knew very clearly I must take Adesanya down, and so did the rest of us because it was on the heels of Adesanya fighting Vittori, where Vittori did take him down, held him there, frustrated Adesanya. So Brunson knows what he needs to do. When he failed, when Adesanya got his hips away, got that underhook, kept him back on the feet, Brunson got frustrated. So it's, it's one of those deals because in many ways this is the same fight. It is. Till is a striker. And he's great at it. And he's weird. He's a very awkward approach. He twists the hips. He keeps his hands down. He goes southpaw. He goes orthodox. He looks like he's going to kick when he's punching. He looks like he's going to punch when he kicks. He's awkward. Adds to his effectiveness. Good news for Brunson. 
even though it's the first time he's fighting Till, it's not the first time he's fought that awkward style. Okay. We are going to have a long fight. I don't close my eyes and invention a way that Brunson gets Till out of there. I can see ways that Till stops Brunson. I can see where Till hurts it, but they're unlikely. You're going to have a long, drawn-out contest. And Brunson has always impressed me with his ability to compete. The harder the rounds get, the more he's got to dig, the more grindy and grimy it gets. He seems to rise to, I think that's the kind of fight that he's going to have. I'm picking Brunson. All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, then I'd love you to go over to my YouTube channel, check out the new videos I post every day, and leave a comment. If you're into that, go subscribe and go have a great weekend, and then come back on Wednesday for more. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome.